Thank you for tuning to the Outlaw Podcast with your host, Robert Dalton. New episodes weekly. Like, share, and subscribe. Hey guys, welcome back to the Outlaws Podcast. Well, today we, I, I think we are finally going to delve into the topic, the more sensitive slash not really sensitive nature of coin counterinsurgency operations and we're actually going to give it more of a depth than most people really really see because everyone who thinks of coin thinks you know past 20 years really relevant for about the past 70 years about 70 70 75 years is about when the first aspects of coin started developing and strategists all over the world started figuring out ways to have to deal with terrorism, um, terrorism actions, stuff like that. Like you, you can go all the way back to the fifties and actually see terrorist organizations popping up all throughout the world. Um, everyone just thinks of, you know, Al Qaeda or ISIS or, you know, the big, the big hit hit, you know, Taliban, big Middle Eastern names, which they they were not the founders of terrorism, I can promise you that. They just learned a different way to bring a war to a country that has the biggest military on, or not the biggest military, the most technologically advanced military on the planet. So without further ado, we're actually going to dive right on into it. So we'll, we'll give a brief overview of the past 20 years. How about that? Yeah. Just give a General overview, and then we'll delve into the history of it. Um, so I guess within the last 20 years, the reason why whenever somebody says like terrorism or insurgency or counterinsurgency or anything that I guess has has one of those connotations, if you will, um, <clears throat> the reason why people always think of at least the Middle East, Iraq, Syria, Afghanistan, um, Yemen, a lot of those places, even into Africa, is because that's what's happened. That's what's kind of been on the forefront over the last 20 years, at least since 2001. But even then, with that being said, with that being just the last 20 years, that stuff, at least in that region, and with its effect on the United States, has been going on since the 90s. Yeah. So <clears throat> there was originally there was a planned, there was an attempted bombing, not necessarily a plane, not involving you know airplanes, but an attempted bombing on the World Trade Center in 95? I think it was 99. I don't know. But there was originally an original attack that was supposed to take place. Um, it didn't go off um, the way they planned, I guess. Um, but then obviously the, the um, 9-11 attacks in 2001. So um, I wouldn't necessarily say that they're the ones, I guess the terrorist organizations, Al-Qaeda, Taliban, ISIS... Um, the Islamic State, Boko Haram. Um, I wouldn't say that they're I'm the sorry, ones. Ninety three. Ninety three. I wouldn't say that they're the ones that came up with the idea. They're definitely the ones within the last twenty years. I would say that have almost perfected um, down to even some of the minute things that has to go on or that goes on with counterinsurgency or with insurgency operations. Um, so, but to give, I guess, more of a background and a historical kind of like leading up to 
the modern era. That's where Dalton's going to focus on. I'm going to focus on the coin operations during the global war on terrorism. Um, you know, what it was, how we got our involvement, like the early tactics of it um, in the early stage of the war, kind of how it evolved and then what it is now, because it definitely has changed between standard grunts going out there to post 2000, to 2003, a lot of our coalition countries um, have developed uh, ex- like counterterrorism, uh, counterinsurgency, whole groups within the special operations community that that is all they focus on is just counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, hostage rescue, stuff like that. Um, so it kind of shows how it evolved into what it is now versus what it was whenever counterinsurgency was written and first implemented. That is also that is correct. So, d- diving in on the history of it, and really, you can't understand the history without of counterinsurgency without understanding insurgency and how insurgents think, operate, and their main strategies on how they want to wage their war. So, the main, the number one, wrote the book strategist that actually developed most modern-day insurgency tactics. It's actually Mao Zedong, uh, China's original communist leader that that rose to power in the 40s. And Mao had been waging a war against Free China for almost 15 to 20 years by then, because they started in the early 30s. And it was before the Japanese invasion. They had already split and started fighting. Well, Mao ended, was losing... The original fight naturally ended up getting pushed back to two cities, and that was all he had left before um, Japan invaded. And Free China took their attention off of Mao and his communists and moved to fighting the forces of Japan. Mao took the time to literally rally support of the people, build his forces, and then figure out a campaign strategy on how he was going to end up taking over the country. So Mao literally brought it down to three tenets. And the three tenets of insurgency, for layman's terms, I will say, is, and in his words is, the basic concept behind people's war is to maintain the support of population, draw the enemy deep into the countryside, and have the population bleed them dry through through a mix of mobile warfare and guerrilla warfare. So literally it, it uses the people to fight the war for them rather than having a standing army, which I, I guess from, cause I was the early thirties, early to mid thirties. And really he started into the forties. That that's really when he really started doing it was in the forties. Yeah. So I guess to bring it up uh, with that being said, to bring it up to, I guess American history in the last 60 years, um, especially like those three tenants, if you look at those and you really like, I wouldn't say look into them, but you really understand them and listen to what it, what he's saying is you can see the parallel between what he wrote and exactly what the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong oh, abs- did. I mean, it's- absolutely. Most of it, North Vietnam was literally supplied by Mao yeah. himself. And so when Ho Chi Minh, literally, he was a United States proxy during World War II. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then whenever he transitioned and started working for, you know, trying to rally support in North Vietnam to 
unify the country and take over under a communist flag. Mm-hmm. He moved, well, they did the same thing during the French Indochina War. Yes. So, I mean, like their tactics, if you look between the French Indochina War and then the what they call the American War, um, the, the way they, t- they evolved their tactics, um, that, I mean, it, well, I wouldn't even say evolved. They used the same tactics. They just had better weapons. Absolutely. So, so they, they ended up getting AKs, RPGs, ways, yeah. to, ways to fight American forces more effectively. More effectively. Yeah. Whereas the French, they were already weakened due to their state in World War II. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and they were also fighting a lot of breakout, same insurgency breakout wars, not only in Vietnam, but also in Algiers, yeah. which we'll get to that here in a second. Yeah. Um, so when Mao finally completed his complete communist takeover of China, these are the, he wrote, he wrote his tenets down in, what was the book called? Was it a red book? No, part of it, it's, it's technically Maoism. There's like four or five books behind it. Um, it's not just a single book. But <clears throat> Maoism is the study of insurgency, or well, his insurgency, and how he, you see a remove, like Sun Tzu is big in China. Yeah, right. That's where China originally got its doctrine from for the past almost 1,500 years yeah. before Mao. And you see a transition from Sun, Sun, Sun Tzu to Maoism. Maoism. And Which now, in modern China, they're using, they're basically, they're still using Maoism for their military side, but they're using a mix of Maoism and Sun Tzu. Well, they reintegrated Sun Tzu because they knew if they were going to fight a near-pure war, yeah. they would have to incorporate near-pure tactics. Yeah. And Sun Tzu had, still to this day, has excellent near-pure tactics. You just, it's one of the books that just keeps on giving when yeah. it comes to stratagems and how to think as a and i do i like that you bring that up um because i've been kind of wrapping up like obviously everybody's seen in the news the whole china situation so in a very hypothetical world if we were to go to war with china and we were to invade china like if we, you know we pushed if they invaded taiwan we pushed them out of taiwan and we decided you know let's go for the big prize and push into mainland china i could see them devolving from the sun Tzu tactics to Maoism into the Maoism tactics and then we'd be fighting a whole other counterinsurgency operation. That's, well, it's no different than trying, like if we were to invade North Korea, that's 100% Maoism. Because yeah. they've had 50 years of indoctrination of them telling their people that the great leader is their god. Yeah. So, China, Chinese people are not the same way as North Koreans. But at the same time, when you're under a... Uh, a pro a proletarian government, aka a communist government, aka you know, essentially a totalitarian and dictatorship oh. without saying it. Precisely. Um, just so I don't ruffle no feathers here. <laughs> All right. Um, when you're under that kind of leadership, you you understand that your government, the the main leader, the dictator, or the totalitarian leader, has final say in yep. everything. And so in order to maintain your standing in your community, whatever standing you may have, you have, you have to bend the knee to that, that leadership. Yep. If you don't, then you're out. That's just how that operates. And, if, and in a Mao strategy, you can literally see this, the Taliban implementing Mao strategy to the letter. Yeah. Even, even, even today, using 
during 2005 to 2012 whenever we were transitioning from a near pure fight to coin and you see how we we're trying to keep up and move our stratagem from hey we just bagged gun run to baghdad th- you know thunder run that now we need to switch to switch to coin yeah took took our military a long time but they had already had people in place they are they i mean the Taliban's been there for forms of the Taliban have been there for centuries, not the Taliban as a yeah, the Mujahideen. Yeah, it was originally Mujahideen. Before that, it was um, Muhammad's freedom fighters. Before that, I mean, you can literally rewind the list as far back as you want to go. Yeah. But they've had they have people in power like sheiks, people in leadership in towns in their pocket, mm-hmm. and that's how they kept their people in line. And to keep us from really integrating our counter counterinsurgency. Well, that's why, like, even then, like, like if you look at it, it only, at least in Afghan, um, in Afghanistan, it really, our methodology and the way we kind of try to run things only work in the big cities. Well, that's the only yeah. places it's going to work because when it comes to, and that that's why you need to understand insurgency as as a whole. Mao didn't work in big cities. Yeah, he worked in the countryside. Mao was a countryside. He, his idea was to... Well, that's, and that's a communist, but that's a communist idea to work with the people, like, to go to the people who do the work. So, in China... To, to an extent, but at the same time, it's not really... Like, it's not communist-specific. Like, it's communist-specific. Yeah, they want to work towards, you know, the people and the working class and stuff like that. But really, in hindsight, if you look at our invasion of Afghanistan and fighting the Taliban. If we had understood that if we keep getting stretched outside of these bigger cities, as we set up cops to try to maintain security, that keep getting pushed farther and farther and farther from the major cities mm-hmm. that we started getting hit more and more and more because in the, that's what they wanted us to do. That's why, that's why Mao's insurgency strategy is so pull them into the countryside, pull them into the countryside and literally use they're and stretch them as thin as they possibly can. So that way you can pick off what little reinforcements are available. Yeah. That's why they like the, at least the Taliban, they had their big, uh, they used to have their big, um, attempts on like a lot of the cops, especially up in like the, uh, the Kunar province. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, like, um, if you haven't seen like the movie Restrepo, the movie Korngal, um, the outpost is another good example. And those really remote cops, you know, we were there to try to help the locals build the roads, have schools, like all these, like to us seems like a very simple and almost like a basic thing. But to them, it's, it's, it was an idea or it was a Western idea for them to yeah, they pave roads. They didn't care about it. Yeah. They, they... And but they had, left. We like we left troops out there, and there was a huge investigation about it after the fact. I think after the outpost incident, and a lot of the other cops was they had these tiny cops that you maybe had a platoon or two, and you're leaving them out there, thirty to fifty guys versus hundreds of Taliban. So there's a huge investigation after the fact. Um, I know that the department or might have been the DOD um, did, and they basically uh, got rid of the whole like setting up these little fire bases, little cops. Because they realize that, hey, this isn't working. 
and all we're doing is losing troops over it. So that and that's a great example of how that counter or that insurgency that Mao wrote, how that actually worked. Well, and, and worked the, out very well. And that's the thing, them. though: if they stretch them thin, they keep them divided, they keep them separated from each other, keep them as far away from any type of reinforcements as possible. They can hit them with a mix of mobile and guerrilla warfare. Yep. That was their entire strategy. Mm-hmm. That's how it worked so well, because as soon as they could isolate just a small portion of the the enemy, mm-hmm. they could literally wipe that side out. And then they just move to the next and slowly isolate another. Yep. They hit them again. And then eventually, if you're if you're like if you're an occupying force like we were, and you're losing mass amounts of troops at these cops, at these at these outlying outposts, eventually you're not gonna want to go any farther than what which we didn't eventually. Yeah, eventually we stopped. we stopped doing the the mounted or the unmounted patrols or the the dismounted patrols and stuff like that, and we just stayed in our bubble. And that that that's that's how you see the stratagems working. So now that we understand, you know, insurgency and how it mainly operates, and well, you got to also I'm also going to touch on one more topic on insurgency. <laughs> Sorry, one more. Because if I miss this one, then we miss the whole shebang on why insurgency is so key, which is terrorism. Yeah. And the, and it's use and strategies of terrorism. And it is a strategy. Believe it or not, most people are like, it's a coward's way. No, it's a strategy that while you can call them cowards all, all you want. It's an effective strategy. It's, it's an effective strategy that people who do not have a lot of assets yeah. can use freely without, with very little blowback to operational security, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's a great, yeah. Because you can send a bunch of freedom fighters that have no tactical knowledge or strategic knowledge of your positions to go do a terrorism operation in a, let's just say some cop in in the Middle East and run a V-bed right to it. Yeah. All right. And you're out nothing. You're out a car. And a dent. Some some detonation material and a dude. That's all you're out of. But the psychological effect that it has on your enemy, mm-hmm. that's what they wanted. They wanted that psychological effect. That's why the 9-11 attacks was so psychologically moving for us. Yeah. That's so what pushed like, us into war yeah. as, a, as a people. It pushed us to accept a war in a country we have had zero dealings with in the past when it comes to military... Military might. I'm not going to count the 80s. I can't. You, you, but here's the thing. All right. I'm a, I'm a, simply, and here's the reason. You kind of have to count the 80s because the only reason I say we have to kind of count them is because in the 70s and 80s, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, we did help them. Yes. We supplied them with Stinger missiles. And, and like, basically, if you really want to look at it, and this is obviously this is going to be a very controversial opinion, what we did. For the Afghanis in the eighties, the same thing we're doing with the Ukrainians, just different stuff. True to an extent, but not really. And here's why: because in the eighties, we didn't like we have a lot of strategical knowledge over Eastern Europe. Okay, we've been there. We kind of know we we know the people, even though it's been seventy years. We've been there. We kind of know how things. Semi-operate troops in Poland and Romania. We understand the people. Yeah. Right? Whereas in Afghanistan, we had no understanding of the enemy we were going up against. 
to how critical that fight was to these people. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like you, we, we literally went in thinking we were going to steamroll these guys and yeah. we end up getting into a protracted war for 20 years. Yeah. That that's the difference between knowing your enemy and America's always known it's in me very well. And we did learn coin and counterinsurgency very quickly. But the problem is with coin, it, it's so protracted because you have to hunt down every little cell because there's multiple that's, cells. Yeah, that's the hard part. That's like even like when uh, I'm glad you brought up the cells. Like, remember, we were, I mean, we weren't kids, but we weren't adults yet. Whenever the, um, whenever, um, SEAL Team 6 got Osama bin Laden. Yeah. Remember, like, that was the big thing. Like, oh, man. Like, and they said that from the beginning. Hey, if we get Osama bin Laden, then the war's over. And that was a big wake-up call because they cut the head off the snake, but the snake grew another head. It's a multi-headed snake. That, that's how that's how insurgency works so well. Too, because it's it's so compartmentalized. Yeah. And we're about to get there now that I've covered terrorism and how it can be an effective strategy to insurgents. It is not a... It is not a strategy I advocate. Yeah. I will say that. Um, but it is a strategy that if as a, as an insurgency group, if you have no literal ways to fight your enemy because you don't have the same, you know, manpower or, or manufacturing skills or, you know, distribution power that your enemy has. Mm -hmm. Terrorism is about your only way you can fight a protracted war and be semi-successful to drive the enemy off. Yep. But after that, now that I've covered the big one um, and insurgency as a whole and in general, really broad stroked it. So sorry for anybody who is seriously you know, vested in it, vested in it. And that was a bore show for you. But for my other viewers out there that, that's kind of a that's a very overview to yeah. kind of give you like a base level of knowledge. Just a base level of knowledge so we can we can actually talk about coin on a level to level basis. So we understand what we're talking so y'all can understand where we're kind of coming from on it, if that makes sense. Um so now that we've hit insurgency, we're gonna actually dive into some of the first forerunners into trying to counter counter insurgency. Which is how it got its name. That's how Coin got its name because we had to counter it. Yep. And one of the first ones that actually had a pretty decent time of it that had great success in isolating cells and removing those cells from power is actually a Frenchman. And surprise, surprise, surprise. The French, the French actually did something semi-right, semi. And we'll get into why he was wrong in the long long term. But we moved to a man named Roger Tran, Trankier. He wrote the book called Modern Warfare. Great book. I advise you to read it. It'll actually give you some serious insight onto how insurgents really think and how to think like them and fight them at the same time. Um, Trankier is a theorist in the style of warfare he called modern warfare. And they're unlocking systems of actions, political, economic, psychological, and military, which aims at the overthrow of an established authority in a country and its replacement by another regime. 
he was critical that traditional armies and ability to adapt to any kind of any kind of new warfare. So like France has always been on the back burner of having to adapt to warfare. You can look as far back as World War II. All right. We're, yeah. That's as far back as we're going to look. We're not going to look farther back because you could go all the way back to Napoleon. But I'm not. Um, they've kind of been all, they've always been the ones kind of slow to s- adapt. Slow to adapt to an ever changing strategy. Well, I was about to get in the Maginot line. That's a great example, yeah. yeah. So pre pre thirty nine, they saw you know Germany taking over these smaller countries, and so they were already prepping for the next mm-hmm. World War. And so they're like, "Well, we're going to do the same thing we did in World War One, World War One, and we're going to establish this line that's going to literally encompass our entire." Border. Border. And we're going to put all of our troops on this border. Well, they protracted all of their troops on this border and didn't really have any reinforcements for each one. They just set all of their divisions up on one line and expected to go into the same trench warfare style of fighting that they did in World War I. Well, they didn't understand the Blitzkrieg. So Tranquier, and knowing what had happened to France during World War II and how it was literally taken in weeks because of this strategy, was very, very critical of how France employed its strategy. So whenever the war in Algiers broke out, which most people don't know of the War of Algiers, but it was actually the same. It was one of the same insurgency wars that uh, France fought in during the times of the Indochina Wars. So they fought the Indochina War, and they fought the war in Algiers at the same time. And Tranquier developed a strategy behind how to counter all of these insurgents in Algiers that were trying to win their freedom. And his strategy literally goes around... (sighs) Tactics included the use of small and mobile commando teams, torture the setting up of self-defense forces recruited by local population and their forced relocation in camps, as well as psychological and educational operations. So kind of a, if you take torture out, you're getting close to FM, our our modern 3-24. Thank you. FM 3-24, which the United States still uses as its coin playbook to this day. Um, so he, and this is where Algiers or um, Tranquier got it wrong, is because he, like I said, he was very effective at taking out each head of each cell. So he would, what he would do is he'd go into a city where he knew where there there would be, you know, insurgents, isolate a group of insurgents, take one of them prisoner, torture them for information until. He found out the next level up. Then he'd go find that one, torture that one until he got to the top and eventually cut the head off of that snake. Then he moved to the next. Well, he didn't understand the psychological effects it would have on the population. He just go rounding up people and torturing them for information. Turns the population against him. Which is exactly why the French ended up losing. They won the they won the Battle of Algiers, but they did not win the War of Algiers. And eventually, like 
he stood by his doctrine even till the end, even when he later passed away. Um, which and later in his life is when he wrote Modern Warfare, which highlights his entire strategies of counterinsurgency. So <clears throat> what you really see when you actually really delve deep into Tranquir is the way that modern strategists started looking at how how was it best we were going to fight an insurgency operation that included terrorism. Um, great. <laughs> Low disk space. I don't care. <laughs> I, I don't care, computer. I will get you a new disk. How about that? Anywho, um, and how how fast the French need to move their way of thinking from fighting a near peer and fighting you know World War II style in the trenches and in battle to battle going from town to town. I don't care. Stop. And uh, moving to coin operations. And if they would have learned it a little quicker, to his point, they probably would not have lost the French Indochina War. Yeah. They wouldn't have. They would have been able to retaliate and actually understand their enemy to the extent of, hey, if we cut the head off the snake here, we can keep moving down these forces until we eventually get to the main honcho and finish it. So now that we have covered Roger Tranquier and his idea of counterinsurgency and how he was going to fight it. And I, I would like to highlight, he did have great success, but the problem that he had was, was eventually the population turned on. Yeah. That's, that's literally what, what slowly killed his, like the French army applied his tactics during the Algerian war and short run. These tactics resulted in decisive victory in the Battle of Algiers, but obviously these tactics were exposed by the press. With little to no effect at the time, they were generally regarded as a necessary evil. In the long term, the debate on the tactics used, particularly torture, would reemerge in the French press for decades to come. And it actually ended up going to court with the trial of Paul Ceceres, and he was convicted of torturing people in Algiers. Um... So we move from Tranquier to Vietnam and our poor, very, very poor understanding of counterinsurgency. But before we do that, break time. Take a little break. Break time. I like breaks. All right. We'll see y'all here in a little bit. Don't go, don't go nowhere. All right, guys, welcome back. Um, Like we said before the break, now we're going to dive into America's involvement in Vietnam, um, some of the counterinsurgency, um, I guess, tactics that we uh, put in place, um, how some of them kind of worked, and the bigger part of how they didn't work, and how um, the end result kind of led to or how, what, what led basically to the end result, um, in 1975. So, um, one of the biggest things I would say, um, that was a, I guess, 
a failure on the general staff side was um, Westmoreland. So when Westmoreland knew, and so did the um, all the politicians in Washington knew when we started getting involved in Vietnam heavily more in 65 that he knew that the fight was going to be basically fighting against two communist regimes. Um, one being the North Vietnamese um, army and then the other being the Viet Cong, but his failure in thinking forward and kind of beyond what was going on at that particular moment was he thought that the North, the, he thought that the North Vietnamese army was the bigger threat at the time, which if you look at it now, um, obviously, Besides 2020, the Viet Cong were the biggest were the biggest threat. Whereas the North Koreans supported the Viet Cong, the Viet Cong was the biggest threat to South Vietnam, Vietnam as a whole. Just simply because they had more reach, they had more political. What's the word? Um, more political credit to burn down there. Just simply yeah. because they knew. Like, for instance, they knew elders, they knew village leaders. Well, the Viet Cong, I mean, they were all South they Vietnamese. They were all South Vietnamese, yes, but they they, they had an infrastructure in place yeah. where they could literally move, maneuver all over South Vietnam with very little resistance. Yeah. And our America's way of having to handle going through and having to hit all these little cells of Viet, Viet Cong was very, very, very poor because we were a blunt force object. Yep. So, um, previous to the Vietnam War, we fought the Korean War, which we, which was a conventional war, if you want to look at it. Um, and so, going into Vietnam or leading up to Vietnam, they thought that all the generals um, and the you know the, all the military staff at the Pentagon thought that the Vietnam War is going to be fought and won. Well, I wouldn't really even say one, but fought in the same way that the Korean War was because both countries were divided, the 17th parallel, much similar to how North and South Korea were divided um, prior to the war. Um, and so um, they saw it obviously as a war against communism um, and that they'd be facing a similar enemy. The military was effective against conventional warfare and was successful um, against the North Vietnamese Army anytime that the American. That we'll even call it coalition because there were more. We had the Rock Marines, Republic of uh, Korea Marines there, the Australians, obviously the entirety of the uh, United States military. Um, so anytime they went up head to head against the North Vietnamese Army, um, they always came. We always came out on top. Um, but that's why they started utilizing the Viet Cong the way they did. Yeah, um, but it goes on to say the uh, they were ineffective against the insurgency of the Viet Cong, um, and. Little known fact, in 1961, when Kennedy took office, he was a proponent. He was a huge fan of counterinsurgency because post World War because post World War II, you see a lot of like, especially um, a lot of the colonies, your colonies that the Brits had, that the Belgians had, the French had. The French they, had. they all kind of like, you know, like, we want some of this independence. We were coming out. Well, we were coming out of colonialization. Yeah, we the the era of colonialization ended after World War II. And this is when all these little countries that had been under these big world powers started wanting their independence. And that's where and the uncertainty really... Well, and it really took off because the communist party and communist factions all throughout the world, they could literally say, well, oh, you don't like them. We'll fund you. We'll fund you. Yeah. And 
as long as you stay in line with our policies and our beliefs, you can keep your people. You can have your government that you want, but it has to be communist. Yeah. And you see that in Korea. You see that in Vietnam. You saw that in Algiers. Shoot, I could literally go down the litany list of Cambodia, Cambodia, Cuba. Yeah. Um, all of these little wars, Panama even, um, with uh, yeah. Noriega. Yeah. Um, but so Kennedy was a big proponent of counterinsurgency, and that's why he oversaw the development. Oh, sorry. That's Nick that's why he oversaw the development of the Army, U.S. Army Special Operator, or Special Forces, Green Berets. Green Berets. That's exactly why he started proponent. That's he developed their mission for them. Yeah, which is counterinsurgency to to an extent. It's to literally go in, go small in, team of people, small team, screen up a bunch of people, to arm them, you. and then you basically send them out to fight for you, rather than having to send thousands of American troops to die on front lines. And if you look, if you look at it, if you kind of like, I guess, take a microscope Sweet. to the entirety of Vietnam, the entirety of the Vietnam War, special operations, special forces had their mission with the Montagnards up in the Central Highlands, and they were very effective. Yep. Um, but you, you know, that's like a that's a that's a that's a raindrop in a bucket. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look at it as a holistic, as a holistic, you know, tactics used during Vietnam, the. Military's just always been hard when it comes to adapting to guerrilla stratagems because not all guerrilla strategies are the same. Viet Cong were not the same as Mo- what know, modern day, what modern day Taliban and yeah, all know, that so. and all those other counter terror or terrorists and insurgent groups are. So, despite having no artillery, tanks, or you know any type of support of their own, Viet Cong managed to hold out against the. Americans until the USA left in the 70s. <sighs> Guerrilla warfare was the main tactic they used. You know, knowledge of the landscape to avoid open battle, launch raids, surprise attacks, and disappearing back in undergrowth. Mm-hmm. Obviously. And the Viet Cong had extreme experience doing this, the Japanese and the French. And when they used... Um, when they started using, you know, the support that they'd garnered with the South Vietnamese, the main people of the South Vietnamese, it essentially won their hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. That big line that, you know, was pushed so heavily during hearts and minds. coin was hearts and minds. Well, they won the hearts and minds of South Vietnamese peasant, peasants, and they would offer them help in daily work and promise them land, more wealth and freedom under Ho Chi Minh and the communists. That was their promise that they yep. gave these people. And so it made it very, very difficult for the Americans to identify who was Viet Cong and who was just a regular South Vietnamese individual, yeah. which Good Morning Vietnam makes a great point to it. Yeah. That's like one of the great things I will say about that movie is that it definitely shows the line of not knowing your friend from enemy in South Vietnam. And so they employed, you know, tunnel systems, booby traps, all these things to keep literally stretching the American troops thin. That's, that was their entire point. So that way the North Vietnamese would come in and hit the pockets of troops that were that were cut off or stretched too far. Yep. Um, so rather than <clears throat> completely understand this tactic and develop a counter tactic to 
well, essentially let's nullify that that advantage that the Viet Cong had. We decided to stay blunt force and yep. war of attrition the whole time. Yep. We never really came off the war of attrition, even after Westmoreland. Yeah was removed from command. Yeah. Um, it was very much like you had, obviously like you had certain divisions, um, that, you know, they had, they had a mission or they had their, you know, they kind of had their own mission. Um, but it was never on a large scale, uh, you know, the, the U S military never moved on a large scale. Away oh, you're talking about the, the, um, pacification. Well, pacification and MACV. Yeah. MACV is just, that's, that's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. Um, <laughs> but their main even then, be it gone. Uh, kill them. Kill them, those. But uh, even like from 61 to 64, 65, I mean, MACV was there and they were literally just taking an advisory role. So they were trying to do the, 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 you know, the building of the hearts and minds, building up a South Vietnamese army that could withstand what the next 10 really 10 years if we look at it from 65, 75 with the next 10 years, like an army they could hold for the next 10 years. Um, and we're just never successful at doing that. We never have been. And it's simply because, so what a lot of, we've been successful in very small increments. Afghan or Iraq is a great example of how it can be done. Um, cause like, um, but also how it can't be done. Well, um, a lot of the special operations guys, I can't remember the name of the task force, but they basically, they made a Iraqi counter terrorism task force and they did really good stuff before we got involved. When ISIS came into Iraq, they and were the ones, the whole country in weeks, I take over the whole country, majority of the country, but they were the ones who did a majority of the fighting in Mosul. Yeah. Um, that kind of stagnated the lines. And then, you know, we got involved in 2017, 2016, or 2016, 2017. Um, so, you know, the Iraqi army was still standing and the rest of the Eastern Iraq, because I mean, if, if you think about it, if you look at the lines, they were only, they only pushed through Al Anbar and up as North as Mosul and a little bit in Erbil, but you had the Kurdish forces, you had Iraqi counterterrorism unit, you know, you had all these little pockets of resistance that kind of held them where they were. Um, and that's, you know, obviously it's a very, like, you can look at it very small pieces, but, um, it was a. It was an example of how it possibly could be. Yes, but it's not. Yes, yeah. The pro. So, and to my point, I'm going to push to make on this one is the big problem with our counterinsurgency operations. Period. Is that we, like Frank here said, you have to, you know, develop a task force and an art, a standing army of actual locals to fight. You have to. You have no choice because you can't just keep sending your own men and expect people to follow and yeah. to actually have them support you. But the problem is, is the winning hearts and minds attitude and wanting to, you know, develop that kind of bond, that mentorship, and then eventually that standing army that you want. It takes more time than you're actually given. Yeah. And so, like, that's why the war in Afghanistan and Iraq took 20 years. And you also think about it like if you want to, if you look, if you kind of want to look at it um, like what you said, like build that relationship. If you look at like World War II or like World War Two and Korea, we'll even put Korea in there, versus Vietnam and then the modern G one, you had rotations. Like World War Two and Korea, like they were there until the war was done, yep. um, until they got enough points to go home. Yeah, and you pretty much had to die to get that. 
And then you would go into Vietnam in the more in the modern era, you had a rotation. So you did like in Vietnam they did, you know, twelve month deployments. Twelve month rotations. And then, you know, going into GWAT we had eighteen month to like nine months, eighteen month, eighteen month rotations. So you spend like especially like with standard army units, you know, you spend upwards of eighteen months and you build that rotate or that relationship and then you rotate yeah, out yeah, and then a whole other unit comes in yeah. October. So with counterinsurgency that's Having a constant rotation of people, um, it, it's not effective. It was a, no, it was a detriment to how you're actually supposed to wage mm-hmm. a counterinsurgency operation. Exactly. Special operations, they, even though like you can take from big army well, and doing eighteen to nine month deployments, special operations are doing six months. Yeah, three to six month rotations. So that's you know that or that you know that degrades it a little bit more. Further, you know, interaction with local forces and building that rapport. Yeah. Um, and building rapport, especially when fighting in another country, is a whole ball game to try to win. And you another no, thing, you um, have no choice. Another thing that's a detriment to um, our counterinsurgency operations, and you know our our way of thinking is, um, we look at it from a very Western idea. Yeah, so like, you know, the building of roads and infrastructure. And stuff well, not only like that. that, but we think of like, we look at it like, you know, you should have pride in your country, whereas in the Middle East, they're very much a tribal mentality. Yeah. So yeah, like, they don't really care about, you know, all of Iraq or all of Afghanistan. They care about their tribe in like this one province. So it's very hard to build an army to connect to the people when you think like, hey, think about the greater Afghanistan, think about the greater Iraq. And they're like, they don't I can give two shits. Yeah, like, care. I just want to make sure my province is okay. So it's very hard. It's a very hard concept for us to wrap our, wrap our minds around, and it still is when you look at it from a tribal stance versus a national stance. Like, we think of everything on a national level. They think of everything as, like, if you want to, like, break it down, um, like, like for us, like, like they think of it as, like, a town level, like a state level, yeah, state whereas level. we think of it as a national. national level. So that was also another big detriment, well, too. And the funny thing is, is if you, if you actually look back on our history and understand that us as a people – us as you know, Americans, we were actually supposed to be loyal to the state that we lived yeah. in, rather than the and that and that's that was that was actually ingrained in the Constitution for a reason. It was the state that you lived in, and that was the law you fell under, and that national law actually was a secondary thing. Yeah. Now national law is primary, and state, state law is secondary. secondary. Yeah. Um, which, better or for worse, we'll never know. History will be the knowledge of that one. Um, so anyhow, a big thing that, the next, and going back to Iraq, um, a big thing that actually fed the insurgency in Iraq was if you, think, if you go back to 2003, we invaded, we destroyed Saddam's army, um, and basically a good example of this is the um, the third generation kill, where they had a bunch of Iraqi soldiers basically surrendered to them and they just turned them around and sent them on their way. So you had all these guys, they, you know, they, the arm, their, the Iraqi army was disbanded. Um, and then they basically were left without a job and they didn't know what to do. Well, at the time there was still a small pot, there was a small pocket of insurgents growing that came from Al Qaeda, which, um, Zarqawi, uh, who was the original creator of the Islamic state or ISIS as we know it now was basically kind of outcast by Osama bin Laden and the Al Qaeda um, regime, if you want to look at it that way. Um, and he was in Iraq basically 
pretty much doing whatever he wanted to do. And he would basically go to these people who had lost their jobs in the army or, you know, because of the war, they had lost their jobs or whatever. But hey, I'll pay you like $50 or whatever, you know, 50 Iraqi dinar to go drop a mortar on this base, a single mortar, record it, and then, you know, then you can leave. And so that kind of what fed the, um, the insurgency was money at the beginning. And then as it progressed, it became the religious jihad for everybody. But originally it was just over money. So another thing that we slowly can't wrap our minds around when it comes to coin, like we'll go back to Vietnam and the fact that to understand the people is to understand the war you're going to fight. Yeah. And the South Vietnamese were very poor. Yes. Just like the North Vietnamese, they were all poor. They had nothing, you know, to really speak of when it comes to material wealth. And so when you have communists coming in saying that you're going to, hey, you're going to have free track of land. If you fight for us, you're going to have this, you're going to have that. Basically centralize everything. And Well, when you, you gain, and the thing is they're, they're gaining rapport with these people by promising them, did it happen? Absolutely not. No. Um, but you're promising them, like especially the leaders of these townships that you're trying to use as, you know, either rally points or supply points, choke points, all these major, and you see it a lot in, Me- in the Mekong Delta. You see it in Trilang. Uh, tri- 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 Golly, my brain just went. Anyhow, you see it in all these different provinces simply because, like, we didn't understand how they did not like their own government. Because they actually saw a lot of their leadership as a farce, like especially their main leader. Um, That's South Vietnam? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he was a proxy. If you you really think about it, he was a proxy. The South South Vietnamese government, after we got involved, was a proxy government. Um, And he was more about his own wealth than the wealth of the nation. And the people saw that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's why they were so receptive to... The communist promise, yeah, promises that they were being given, and so when you don't, when you don't back up your, when you don't back up your bark with a bite, yeah, then you don't, you lose credibility, and that's eventually ended up what happening. The South Vietnamese government lost credibility with all these smaller townships, and that's how the Viet Cong was able to put two hundred miles long of tunnel. Trails, yeah. Tunnel trails and <clears throat> supply routes through all of these little townships is simply because they they were able to build rapport with these people. So, <clears throat> in hindsight, looking back on Vietnam, if we would have actually moved out of a war of attrition and moved to more of a coin operation and actually nullified the South Vietnamese, uh, Viet, I was going to say this, the South Vietnamese Viet Cong, if we nullified their presence and their ability to wage war on us. Yeah. And in their insurrection, insurrectionist ideas, we probably would have had a lot better opportunity to actually fight the North Vietnamese on level playing grounds. Yeah. Which is why, like, the North Vietnamese, in battle to battle, we, we dominated. But we lost the war due to lack of strategy on how to win hearts and minds on a low... And... When you look into like Afghanistan and Iraq, you see how we tried fixing this. Yeah. 
but we tried too hard. If that makes sense. Yeah, um, I've got a really it's a it's kind of a cool graph. Um, it says key elements of coin strategy um, should be conducted simultaneously to exert maximum pressure on the enemy. So in the middle of this graph, you have enemy freedom to act and influence. So they're on a, to break it down Barney style is their ability to move, shoot, communicate, communicate, you know, effectively and build and be able to build their political presence. So demonstrate the willingness and ability to use force, implement a rigorous and coordinated detainee process inform and influence operations, um, provide essential economic uh, and social services, infiltrate and report on enemy operations, promote safety and security, partner with indigenous security forces to to plan and conduct operations. So all those things are basically surrounding this and pointing to it. So all these things, all, let's see, seven um, of these uh, key elements are supposed to be done simultaneously to put maximum pressure on the enemy. And I basically just reworded what it says. But um, and a good example of this, um, so a good example of how we were kind of late to the ball game. We're late, we're, you know, we're the princess late to the ball for this. Um, the United States didn't have, they, we didn't have a coherent coin strategy in Iraq for more than three years. So from 2003 to 2006, we have a successful um, or coherent coin strategy. So in the absence of such strategy, such a strategy, coalition forces focused on the tactical approaches, door-to-door raids, presence patrols, which became increasingly intermittent and ineffective over time. Um, so another good example from Generation Kill was Towards the end of the show, I'm not, I don't want to ruin it for if you haven't seen it, but um, it's kind of a small tidbit. They Once they got up to Baghdad, they kind of started moving around. So they'd be in this neighborhood, and they'd move 20 clicks up and be in a different neighborhood. They're trying to promise all these things, but they weren't able to stay in one area to influence that area and then move to another area. Um, so eventually you get led with false promises, and then it eventually turns the people against you, and eventually you lose the hearts and minds of the people, which later on... From 2007 and eight is really when I'll say they really started the surge. Whenever the surge happened, yeah. when when they really when the surge happened and they really started focusing in on actual coin operations. So um, they, article uh, goes on to say, unable to synchronize outcomes at the strategic and operational levels of warfare, senior commanders shifted their focus from one city to another. Most notably, Talafar, Fallujah, particularly Baghdad. So you can even throw in um, Ramadi. And there he is in there. Um, and the strategy, if you look at Ramadi, um, Jocko Willink, so he, he, he was obviously a SEAL commander there. Um, he talks about it um, in a way that it actually worked. So they'd move, they'd almost, they'd move like one or two blocks up, set up an outpost, move a couple more blocks up, set up an outpost. And, you know, and like it's, that sounds simple, but it was, you know, it was a very hard fight or a very hard fight for 300 meters around. And they basically did that to clear the city. Um, but, uh, most notably, yeah, Talafar, Fallujah, particularly Baghdad, and they were all rapidly spinning out of control. Rather than being deterred, enemy combatants appeared to be emboldened. Law-abiding Iraqi citizens never knew what to expect from either side. So that goes back to your point of, and Vietnam not being able to successfully distinguish between Viet Cong and local, and, you know, local civilian populace, and it was the same way in Iraq and Afghanistan. Oh, yeah, no, and you, and that, that's the key, though. That's that's the key that no one can figure out, and still to this day can't figure out. Like yeah. There's not a there's not a set strategy in place, and that's the thing with strategy; it has to change. It has to constantly 
And the big yeah, thing is, like what we always say, the the also with even with corner persons, the enemy gets a say too. Yeah, the the enemy always gets a say, and it's always it's always a two way conversation. So, like especially during G one, they learned our tactics. They learned and our, so they tactics, our tactics they, against us. Well, and, and then we have to. Well, it was basically back and forth the entire time. Well, and that's that's why like the use of ROVs was our probably number one hindrance, but number one way that we were going to win. So, yeah. and that that was also a problem when you're fighting a just war. Which is called just war clause. Mm-hmm. All right, just war strategy is a terrible strategy to go down, um, and eventually, and that's really what the administrations during um, Coin was pushing. Yeah, they were wanting to fight a just war against people and wanting, you know, as much, you know, limits civilian casualties, exactly infrastructure destruction, infrastructure destruction, no, no type of harm to any type of civilian populace, but when you're fighting a coin operation and the civilians are the enemy and like nine out of nine out of 10, they're the enemy, but 10, not the enemy. It's like, it's, it's a very, blurred it's a line. very blurred line. Yeah. And because you're not fighting a conventional uniform force. Yeah. And even then they tried to create, I know once the, um, once the Iraqi Republic forces or whatever they were, they were called, once they were disbanded, the insurgents, a lot of the insurgents started running around tracksuits. And so the ROE changed to like, hey, anybody in a tracksuit, you know, they're the enemy. And then they learned that, like, oh, well, they know if we wear tracksuits, that we're the enemy. So we'll just stop wearing tracksuits or everybody wore tracksuits. So um, and that's a great example. And even then, like, um, you hear that you hear it said very often that war is not black and white, it's gray, which is true. And especially in today's world. So there's not there's not a, a set limit on who the enemy is anymore because you're not fighting near. In coin, you're not fighting your peer. Yeah, you're just not. And whenever you you're you're fighting a force that you can't see, you have to you have to develop an operational SOP on how to d- determine your enemy. Yeah, because as a standing fighting force, as a uniformed army, you have to have an SOP. Everything has to have has have an SOP. Mm-hmm. You just can't not be you know, especially us as Americans because we. We like to we like to write everything down and say this is the playbook. This is what you go by. There's no wiggle room. This is this is like your SOP. Your SOP. This not your left yeah. and right limit, mm-hmm. and that that's what you got. But when you're fighting a coin operation, there cannot be that. Yeah, and even in 2023, they, it's still the same it's way. With the us. same way. Yeah, and and that that's why. I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but America could never win a coin operation. They just could, can't. Yeah. Not not as we fight. If we changed our strategy to incorporate a more flexible enemy. Yeah. And instead of and the thing is with rules of war, you have to have that standard SOP. That's why you can't. We abide by rules. Mm-hmm. And rules do keep us separated from the enemy and do keep our they keep our Fight more just, but war is never really a just fight. Yeah, it's always over some type of political belief. Yep, it's just how war is. But war is sex, money, religion. Well, the war war is just an off, offspring of politics. Is yep. is is the result of a political act, and it's just how it is. War is the byproduct of politics. Yeah, yeah you can't have one without the other. So, um, kind of getting back on track, like you said, with the Maoism, 
um, with, you know, help or basically one of the things is uh, turning the civilian populace on, basically turning them onto your cause. Oh, you, have, yeah, yeah, you have no choice. You so this is kind of where Maoism and terrorism kind of deviate. Um, so a big thing with both Iraq and Afghanistan, but this article only really focuses on Iraq. Um, the United States did not sufficiently protect the Iraqi population. So um, in June and July of 2004, Iraqi insurgents began to shift their focus away from U.S. and coalition forces and instead began targeting the Iraqi population. Yeah, that were supporting the Americans. No. This says everybody. And it goes on to say, by attacking civilians and accepting their targeting and retribution, the, Iraq, the insurgents sought to expose the weaknesses of the coalition Iraqi security and reconstruction apparatus, threaten those who collaborated with the government, generate funds and propaganda, and increasingly enact sectarian revenge. The coalition have failed to adapt to this shift, thereby making an error that had dramatic consequences. Well, and that's the thing. When, so that's why they like when like that's what I was saying. It was retribution because whenever you in the early days of the war, they started like with the V beds when IEDs and V beds became big things. They just started. They they'd send V beds out randomly. They hit a school. They hit a radio station. They hit a market. And they'd be like, well, the, obviously the Americans aren't protecting you from this. So, but you know, if you don't work with them and everything, then we'll protect you. So it was kind of like. Like, we're going to stab you in the back, but then tell you it's their fault. Well, that, that's, that's psychological operation. Yeah, and terrorists are, that's, that's like, what terrorism that's like number, is. That's like number one. That's what terrorism is, is a psychological operation. By any type of tactical means, terrorism doesn't work. Yeah. Because there's not, there, like, 9-11 was the biggest terrorist target hit. All right, but it hit none of, it did not finish our, our ability to make war. Yeah. It's like a, soft target. A, a tactical target was like Pearl Harbor in 41. Yeah. All right. That's a, that's a tactical target to try to cripple our way to, way to wage war. Yeah. Whereas a psychological target is 9-11. Whereas we're hitting, and it, that's all it was because they hit our money, which was the World Trade Center. Mm-hmm. They hit our command and control, which was the Pentagon. And the other one that was going to where it was supposed to go was, our, yeah. political, was yeah. our political center. And if you could hit those three, that's the core. That's what Osama believed was our core tenets: mm-hmm. money, which was greed, defense, defense, which was Pentagon, and, and, the, head of state. and the head of state. Yeah, and he essentially thought he could cripple us psychologically. But yeah. the way we're set up in a constitutional republic, as we are, there are checks and balances in place to keep us to wage war. So terrorism wouldn't work in the tactical sense. Yeah. In the psychological sense, perfect. You couldn't have hit any more tempting or heartstring. Yes, because you're hitting right in the heart of America, which is New York City, yeah. where immigrants have came through for years, and what a lot of people think is the heart is the heartbeat of America is New York City. You hit the head, which is the capital which is pretty much the brain. Yeah. And when you you hit your heart, you hit your brain, they didn't even have to go for the dang um, Pentagon. Pentagon. Well, yeah. no, they didn't have to go for the White, White House. House. Yeah. Um, because in, in essence, it didn't really, no one really cares who the president is. They just care whose party is in. Well, they care, but they don't. Yeah. Yeah. They just yeah, care yeah. Which party is in power. If yeah. In, in Maine, Obviously, it's just not. They, well, even then, they that whole vote thing. on party lines, not on who who is who's the sitting person. 
But even then, like, it's still, like, I think the big thing at that time was, like, oh, we can't let the terrorists win. Um, well, and that, I guess but we're going it, back to it, just war. If you so think that, about it, though. That's why they we kind of fight a just war. They, but if you think about it, and this is a little, might be a little sensitive, but if you think about it, they kind of did, in a sense, because their whole goal was to draw us in, going back to Maoism, draw us in. Um, try to cripple us financially. Two thousand eight recession. What's going on currently? Um, and to basically turn the public against the government, which it wasn't as bad as Vietnam, as we'll say. Uh, but there was still a vast majority, or I wouldn't even say a majority, but there was still a large number of people in the country that were like, you know, no war in Iraq or no war in Afghanistan. So they kind of checked all their boxes of what their objectives were and they still took over Afghanistan, still managed to have control. Iraq, they, you know, Iraq kind of went both ways. They had it for a little while, then we had it for a little while, they had it for a little while, and now it's just kind of like, eh. Who really has it? No one really cares anymore. Mm -hmm. That's, well, that, that was the thing with America. We didn't, the Afghanistan war was probably the only way you could wage a just war. Iraq was not because yeah. we went we we invaded Iraq, Iraq was just dirty. Like if you think about it, it was dirty. We invaded Iraq in false pretenses. Yes, and that it was just and that's been proven. Yeah. So any conspiracy theorists out there that are like, what are you talking about? Or if, yeah, if you want to look at them side by side, like Afghanistan was more of a just Afghanistan heavy was, quotation marks was our just war yeah. that we were going to wage. And that, but in order to wage that just war, we decided to open up a whole other front in Iraq. Yeah, to wage another just war because of WMDs, and then we ended up saying not, that not WMDs is just the the gassing of Kurds in the nineties that literally left such a lasting effect. Yeah. yeah, and in order to wage this just war to get Saddam out of power, that was our that was our plan. Yeah. That, that was literally, that, that was how we wrote it to be. And, and that's how it was pitched to the American people. That's exactly how it was pitched. And if you want to wage a war, just war is about the only, especially after a terrorist, terrorist attack, it's about the only way you can pitch it. But the problem with just war is, is you have to abide by rules. Yeah. They're like... In the beginning, like if you weren't, if you really want to look at it at the beginning, we, there, there really weren't any. Like ROE was just kind of like it was a suggestion. Um, and then, obviously, once it kind of shifted to what it became, then the ROE obviously had to adjust to that. Um, and it kind of became what it was at the end. Well, American, America has always had ROEs. We've always had stand, even as far back as the Civil War, I would say. The, and, but the ROE is very loose. Like, hey, they, they don't were, kill civilians. Well, yeah, they and don't lose. Kill. Yeah. But you can see how they, from the Civil War all the way up until today, how they have continuously just went, gotten gotten brought in, and now you have a very specific limit left and right on it. Well, and it's not even don't shoot unless you're shot at. You can, like, especially in, like, Afghanistan, people have weapons everywhere. Yeah. And that was a big thing for us to wrap our minds around. Yeah. Everyone carried a weapon. So now, since everyone's carrying a weapon, how are you going to distinguish who's shooting at you and who's just out for a Sunday stroll with their with their uh, bolt action slung over their shoulder? Yeah, like you, you have no idea how to determine that. 
And even then, especially in Afghanistan, it was a big, I think it was a bigger thing in Afghanistan. It was still a thing that happened in Iraq, but it was a, it was a bigger thing in Afghanistan was the green on blue. Yes. So like going in another principle of counterinsurgency is building the, um, building a local army, um, and have them kind of do the fighting for you. And that's the most kind of broad stroke way to put it. Um, but the process, the vetting process for building that with the AMP, the Afghan national police, um, the ANA, the Afghan national army, um, the vetting process was very loose at the time. Um, and then, you know, you were able to have Taliban and Al Qaeda, um, members join under the false pretense that like, Hey, I'm going to be part of the ANA or the AMP. And then they turn around and shoot Americans in the back. And I think that was a big thing in like 2011 to 2013, maybe 2010 to 2013, uh, even going into 2014, 2015. Um, so, um, that was kind of like, that was like one of our biggest, plays i guess if you want to look at it, like if you want to look at it from what you said like the playbook that was like one of the biggest plays that we had that was like hey like this could actually work but then they started infiltrating um the amp the meetings and the trainings uh um all the trainings and stuff like that and then they ended up um obviously doing the green on blue or what we thought was green on blue but it was really you know afghan yeah. or the uh the taliban or the, the uh, al-qaeda operators so that brings us to the last point, which was our complete and total answer to how we were going to wage war from 2010 onward. That is, FM, that was a big shift. Well, FM 3-24 came out. Yeah. General Petraeus's baby. This is like the number one textbook on how to on how to try strategically fight an insurgency unit. Yeah. And he he takes a lot. That's why I said earlier, like uh, Tranquier, mm-hmm. Roger Tranquier, the the French strategist. He's kind of the grandfather of FM 3-24. He was extreme. Yeah. He was very much the grandfather because you could definitely see a lot of parallels. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say it was quoted. I'm not going to say it was read. I'm not going to say plagiarized. I'm not going to say it was plagiarized. <laughs> All I'm going to say is is the same. Some of the same ideas that you see in FM three twenty four are in Tranquier's Modern Warfare, <laughs> which I'm sure General Trace probably read very thoroughly. Because to understand your enemy, you have to understand a strategy to fight them, mm-hmm. and that was one of the very few books on strategy that had been developed to fight coin or to a fight to fight coin operations. And so like, let's see the first part of FM gives you, you know, strategic and operational context. Second part is, you know, insurgencies. And the third part is counterinsurgencies and how to fight them. So, I'm not even going to dive into this whole book because it's, I don't know, 202 pages long. Yeah, it's long. Um, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not, you know, officers of Bullock or I Bullock. Like, we're not going to. Well, <laughs> the thing is with. We're NCOs, give us the fucking cliff notes. <laughs> I cliff note everything, which is in essence a broad stroke. Yeah. Just simply because there's a lot 
Like I, I've read this whole doc. I've read it. I've actually studied a lot of it, which is how I ended up finding Roger Schrank here and understanding his tenets on counterinsurgency and ways that, you know, this works, this doesn't work. This is, works in some cases. And in order to understand coin that people just can't wrap their minds around is there is never a textbook doc doctrine yeah. that's going to win a coin operation. And like FM3-104 is a great basis. basis. But the thing is, when you use it as a playbook, it yeah. will fall on its face. Coin operations, like strategy behind coin operations, is kind of like a white, like a dry erase board. You write some up there, like this worked for a little while. No, it doesn't. Erase it. Let's try something else. Because the enemy always adapts, and yeah. there's always more cells. There's more cells in an insurgency than there. There's going to be missions for counterinsurgency. Yeah. Because you're not going to know of all the cells in an insurgency. You're only going to know of a few. Yep. And so when you enact a doctrine to fight these cells that you know, it's going to go back to the other cells and be like, oh, they're using this way to fight us. Well, in order to, in order to counter that, we're going to start doing this. And this is where you see extreme compartmentalization of operations that Al-Qaeda and ISIS would do. This mm-hmm. is why they started doing more small unit tactics more small small cell work where they were using cells from all over all over centralized Afghanistan and Iraq and mm-hmm. Syria. And you would see only one person would know who to report to next. And only that person would know another person to report to. And it would just constantly it, it, they, had a, they had a chain of curators. That, that was the thing. It, yeah. A lot of it was done courier basis. And it, how we found Osama bin Laden was we found a cell and we started tracking couriers yeah. and stepped it up ladder to ladder to ladder until we found who's Osama, who Osama's couriers were. Yeah. And so then we started tracking them, figuring out where they came from, what they were doing, how what routes they did. And even then, if you look at the intelligence for Operation Geronimo, the, the raid to capture, kill Osama bin Laden, even then, the intel that they had, um, like where his compound was, was only 60%. They were only 60% certain that he was there. Yep. So even then, well, so that kind of shows like how well their courier system worked because it shows how well it worked, but then also how well it didn't. Like It's kind of like, just like we said, it's no, very, it's so, like white, it's very gray. This is how it does work, though. And this is how we have never been able to counter it, even to this day. Like, this is why we, 20 years later, here we are, talking about this same operation that lasted for 20 years, and we never we never got a real handle on how to successfully mitigate every cell from touching us or from doing detriment to the way our strategy and war was going to be played. All right. So I'm going to use two, two operations, two very, very well-known operations that operation Geronimo is obviously one. And we're going to do operation. No, I'm not going to do that one. That one's still, I will just use Geronimo. All right. 
we'll show you how it works, how it doesn't work. So the courier system that Al-Qaeda had implemented, how it worked was it literally would shuttle all of the orders to the cells. So it would literally pass off each order to each individual cell supervisor is what I'll say. And then that cell supervisor would move it down the line until it reached the individual cell and that individual cell would carry out the mission. So we found a cell and we followed it all the way up. And it took us 10 years to actually locate a semi-conducive brochure yeah. that would grant us um, mission approval mm-hmm. for an operation. And the reason is, is they switched couriers all the time. The only ones that really stayed in place was Osama's couriers. Yeah. And we can never really nail those down. We only nailed down one. Yeah. And it's rumored that he had over 10, yeah. 15. And we only nailed down one. We only tracked him as far as we could. And then we kind of lost him because he would move vehicles. He would transfer, he would tra- transfer orders to other people. And then he just disappeared. And then he'd pop up on a grid somewhere else. Yeah. And then we'd track him again. So it worked because it always kept us trying to chase our tail. We were always ended up chasing our tail. It didn't work in the fact that eventually if you don't rotate your operational security and rotate your people that you're using, phase them out, bring in new couriers, find people you can trust to do the same job, then eventually you rely on the same people. And that's what ended up happening was Osama's courier was found. I think it was found in Karachi, Pakistan. Pakistan. And then they just tracked him as far as they could track him. And then they kind of had a tentative idea on where he was and we just figured we'd pull the trigger. That's why we had a 60%. And it ended up working out. It it worked out. I mean, it really, honestly, if you look at it, it could have gone either way. And here's how it doesn't work. And this is the main tenet that I want to do is it doesn't work for us to follow the courier simply because as soon as you cut off that head. Another one grows. Or there's another one. There, there's also another, there's another one, but also now you have to restart the whole thing yeah. to find the next one. Like Al Baghdadi. Yeah, that's a great one. That's, that that's, that's the other one perfect. that I was going to yeah. bring up was in order to find Al Baghdadi, we literally had to do about the same thing. Yeah. And it took us a lot shorter time because we'd actually fine tuned our ways on tracking, you know, UAVs started becoming way more. Well, remember he had radio silence for a long time. And then I think when I was in Iraq, that's when he came out and did a video, I think during Ramadan or right, right before during whatever. And he was in Ramadi. Mm -hmm. And so they were able like, Oh shit, he's in Ramadi. And they were able to track him to Syria after that. And that was his big blunder was he put that out there they were able to find out where he was, and then they basically tracked him from there. To well, that's why Osama had complete radio silence for mm-hmm. like the past five years, the last five years of his. Because they life. knew, they knew he knew that if he showed his face, the Americans were going to be on it like right on rice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because he was America's number one most wanted. Yep. So most of the intelligence organizations—that's who they were gunning for. They each one had a specific task force dedicated to that man. Yeah. Each one of them. You can 
you can list every alphabetical agency. Anything that, and then even then, if you want to look at like the, the like worldwide, like each country, each coalition country had their own task force. That was like five, MI six, all of them had uh, JTF two for Canada. For us, it was Dev Group Delta. Yep. Um, for the Brits, uh, obviously that MI five, MI six, and then uh, their SAS. They had all of these, but that's the thing. We we but we had honed in, on, and by the time that we'd ended up getting Osama, he was irrelevant yeah i mean he wasn't really he was kind of running al-qaeda but he wasn't he wasn't because he and this is where you see the shift from al-qaeda al-qaeda to isis yeah is because he started taking a more hands-off approach his cells started becoming more you know centralized yeah and eventually without a good mouthpiece you lose credibility with your people and so it it works but it it doesn't. Yeah. Not, you cannot take a playbook and run a play-on-play with a coin operation. You cannot. You yeah. just can't. Simply because the the enemy will, like, I just, you can Google our, our playbook. Yeah. And you don't think anyone else can read this. You're out of your mind. Yeah. They read this. They understand how we are. Like, and they do the exact, exact opposite. opposite. Yeah. Which falls on the American you know, way of war on that one because the enemy not knowing your strategy is the main key to actually fighting a prolonged engagement. Like, if you're going to fight a protracted war, you have to change strategy. You cannot. Not like, that's why we lost Vietnam. We never moved off of our war of attrition strategy. Yep. We never did. We can Kill counts. And even then, the kill counts were, uh, a lot of times, they were fluffed. Fluffed. Exactly. And... No one cared, though. They, they just cared about... And they this cared, is what... Officers cared about that statistic. Yep. How many Viet Cong or NBA were killed? How many Americans were killed? If it's a positive statistic, hey, it's a win. Yep. And, but, and this is also where you see why Tet was so effective in the American withdrawal. Because... Yeah. Because if you look at it, Tet was a success for us. Oh, complete success for because us. Because after that, the Viet Cong weren't really able they weren't really able to mount any type of real no, they burned operation. No. They lost a fuck ton of people. Well, not just that, they burned a lot of political clout doing it. Yeah. That that was really what got them was that they had burnt so much so much inroads, especially knowing of what it was gonna do to the people. Yeah. Like they were doing essentially terrorist bombings on the US embassy. Terrorist bombings on the radio stations. Case on. Yeah. You name it. Everything that they had pushed for was for Ted. And Way, um, kind of, I guess to kind of put a microscope on it, Way was, uh, for the South Vietnamese, it was a very religious city. Yep. It was originally a capital city. Yep. For the, whenever Vietnam was the entirety of Vietnam. Um, so once they attacked that and they, they killed, I don't, I don't know what the civilian, uh, you know, casualty statistics were for it, but. They ended up. I know there was a lot of civilians that died, and so a lot of them, at least in the more populated areas, um, really uh, they turned their backs on the communist um, idea and regime. That's why even at the end of the war, if you look at it um, in seventy four, seventy five, there was a lot of Vietnamese that were fleeing the country. I mean, just by like you know they get on sandpans and think they can make it across the entirety of the Pacific Ocean of America, but you know they had really no other choice. Um, and the same way with Afghanistan. I mean, give them a horse and they'll literally be at your back door over 
the entire Hindu Kush mountains in a day. Yep. And that's, I have my own personal opinions on how coin needs to be ran and how, you know, it would possibly work my own strategies. But at the same time, who knows if it would be effective. I don't know. I just can see like, you just, that's what strategists do. They take history and they take what has been done, which is why Petraeus came out with, with three dash 24. It's because he's seen what had been done. Mm-hmm. He had seen what had been done in the past. What was effective, what, did, what, worked, what, effective, what didn't work, what didn't, and he developed his own strategy to fight it. Mm-hmm. And it was actually pretty successful yeah. for a coin for a coin strategy. His was probably in the realm of the most successful, just simply because he did null up like towards the end of towards the end of the Afghanistan operations, towards the end of the ISIS, the war the war on ISIS. Which like, they're still kind of popping up around. They're still popping up and around. But they're not what they were in, you know. 2016, 2017. Yeah. Those, those days are gone. Those days are, for ISIS are essentially over. Because now they're understanding that the only way you can fight FM 3-24 is small cell operations. Mm. Which, but the big thing for them is they have, they, they no longer hold um, popular public opinion in those regions. Which is why most of them moved out of the country. Yep. But in essence, if if you would like to hear my personal opinions on strategy, <laughs> coin strategy, which I'm sure you do not, you can bleep bloop that down in the comments. And eventually, me and like, I, I end up going on vacation this week, so I'm going to end up putting out a podcast on my own later on. Robert's yeah. going to put out his next week, and then after that week, he goes on yeah. his vacation, and I'll. Be here, and if y'all want to hear that, then that's fine. If not, we will delve into the Masters of, of War strategies and tactics, and we'll actually cover a lot of the older strategies and older historical figures that came up with these different tacti- tactics and war stratagems on how to fight an effective war. Yeah. Now, I don't know what you're going to cover. But feel free to cover whatever the whatever yeah, I don't, you I really have an idea right now. Um, but I just know that that's probably the the realm that I know the most is not just ancient history, but well, it technically is. I guess it is a past hundred years is technically ancient now. Yeah. So yeah, ancient more more ancient or stress. But I'll probably actually staying on the whole like uh, insurgency operations. I'll probably talk about the. Uh, the partisan movement against the Germans during World War II. That's because that's that's kind of like essentially insurgency operations, if you want to look at it. Um, to just extent, just yeah. put his freedom fighters. Um, but yeah, uh, going back to like this, um, saying like with Petraeus, like with coin operations, obviously it's ever changing, ever evolving. Um, a big thing with that is culture. Yeah, you have to understand the culture. Like a coin operation, like coin operations in Afghanistan are going to be very different if there's a coin operation in Europe. Or coin operation in South America, you know it, it's it's cultural, regional, um, political ideas, religious ideals, like they all have a play in how um, the insurgents will kind of, I guess, create their playbook and how they're going to operate and how um, an opposing force would have to kind of <clears throat> tailor their insurgency oper- counterinsurgency operations to that. So, I mean. 
having a playbook is great for a, a very like a like a foundation, but for long term effectiveness, like it, it is ever changing. Well, this is why special forces was so called upon during the past war on with coin because yep. they could like that was the Green Berets' forefront. That's what they knew. That's what they were developed to do was to develop, you know. Indigenous people to fight their own wars. Yeah. And so they were called upon heavily whenever we invaded Iraq, overthrew Iraq, put in the government, and they needed to build an army. So guess what? Text textbook for textbook playbook for any type of Green Bray strategy. Um and the same thing with Afghanistan. And the same thing with Afghanistan. Um and and that was the thing and especially towards the end was melding you know, conventional forces and special forces. Yep. So that way you didn't have a mix match of, man, piss on you, you're conventional. Oh, piss on you, you're special forces. You know, you had to meld them to where they would work simultaneously, simultaneously in and in conjunction. So that way you can both accomplish. Because at the end of the day, both, you both have the both same mission. Same mission, different. I mean, same, like, overall, like, hey, win the war. Win the war, yes. But... Special operations main missions were very, very specific, and this is why they are so called upon. And they were different means to the same end. Well, and you see an end to really conventional, like how conventional forces were able to wage war, which yeah. is why special forces was so like perfect. Yeah, is because they you could use them as direct you could use them as direct action guys. action guys. You could use them as you know press and hold and build, which was literally our, we would literally take, like when we took Ramadi, we tried to hold it as as long and hard as we could mm-hmm. and build up forces to try to protect it. And then later on, 2006, 2000, 2007, 2008, whenever Iraq or the uh, insurgents retook over Ramadi and then we had to go back door to door kicking. Yeah. We had to understand that we had to understand our lanes, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because if if you can't get both sides to work, it's just not going to work well. Um, intelligence, we already covered that. Planning for countering insurgencies, you know, conceptual planning, blah, blah, blah. Very hard. Good luck. Yeah. Because you, unless, you're, unless you're targeting a certain cell, you're not going to be able to fully understand the capabilities of like broad cells, like multiple cells. Yep. Um, indirect methods for countering insurgencies was the main one that I actually took out of FM 3-24 because that that's where you see a lot of the winning hearts and minds. So that's, that's, that was the chapter 10 was the playbook for winning hearts and minds and, you know, working chapter 10 and 11 was also working host nation forces, you know, Developing host nation force, relationships, and security cooperation planning, which you see a lot of. Yeah. Like, ton of. SDF. SDF. Especially SDF, God. Yeah. And then legal considerations, you know, your authority to do. Yeah. That's why you have to have, like, that proxy government kind of stuff. Well, that's the thing. The authority to assist a foreign government. Yeah. is like, key when it comes to legal considerations, your ROEs, the law of war, 
non-international armed conflict, detention and interrogation, enforcing discipline of U.S. soldiers, training and equipping foreign forces, commander's emergency response program, claims and all that good old stuff, and establishing rule of law. Well, if your rule of law doesn't abide by what the culture accepts, that's where... Out the window. That's where that goes out. Poof! Gone. And so, this... The chapter 13 is the one that I probably disagree the most on when it comes to having to fight a counterinsurgency yeah. war. Which you have to if you're, like I said, you have to if you're American. You have no choice. All eyes are on you. Yeah. You just have no choice. Just how it is. But if you were like a smaller nation like Al- Algiers, if you're one of those and you have free Algiers or Vietnam, yeah. then if, you, if you're that small government, this is where you can actually go beyond an FM and understand how to really fight a non-conventional force. But until that man eventually comes along, which he will, because counterinsurgents or insurgents are not going away anytime in the near future. It's just, it's the way it is. The way it is now, it is now, it is now a form of warfare. And if you don't adapt, you will eventually lose. Anywho, that's a great time to wrap it up, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, we broad-stroked every living piss out of coin. We apologize. But we figured we'd just go ahead and delve into it and try to try to give some type of credence and understanding to how that war was actually fought. Yeah. Like from a 3,000-foot perspective. Yeah. And a lot of people look at it, you know, from ground level and don't understand how you have all these different, all these different parts, parts kind of... that have to work. Like you said, the seven spheres that have yeah. that have to work in conjunction. And if they don't, they don't work. Yeah. Well, getting seven things to work perfectly right at the same time, kind of hard to do. Yeah. So eventually someone will develop a strategy that's better and that works better. I'd like. Can't wait to see it. <laughs> Can't wait to see it. I think Trinkira had it mostly right, though, on a lot of his stratagems. But, anywho, <sighs> we appreciate y'all hanging out with us for this hour and a half. Yeah. Hour and a half of us speaking. We apologize for Thank you for joining our TED Talk. Thank you for joining our <laughs> TED Talk and how we think this war would have done better. But yeah. It's very easy to look at it from a uh, um, hindsight 3000 view. Kind of removed from it. It's very different when you're involved in it, but obviously... I mean, we were involved. We, I mean, kind of now being able to look at it from a from if, a very far away. If you don't look, if you don't look at it from a three thousand foot perspective, and have you know rearward thinking to actually look at what worked and what didn't, it actually hinders you as a people. Yep. And if we ever had to fight another coin war, war, if we didn't look, look at what look at the past twenty years yeah. and try to develop a better strategy for it or a more, a more effective, effective way, way yeah. to fight this war, this war without having so many moving parts. That would be, that would be great for us. So that way we could possibly win a coin yeah. war one day. But other than that, we appreciate y'all hanging with us. Y'all stay tuned. We'll keep dropping. Uh, we'll keep dropping more content. As much as we can, we've kind of veered off of YouTube a little bit. Just wasn't 
getting the views that we wanted. So we're kind of, you know, taking a little step back here, trying to re refit, reprogram what we want to do. And we'll get back into it. I promise we will start dropping more YouTube. Yeah. It's hard to find time sometimes. It's hard to find time. And you just can't, we can't really bank on it right now. Our, our viewage and our main thing is the podcast. Yep. And so we'll just keep harping on it. And we hope that eventually someone please comment, please <laughs> give me some type of feedback. So I don't sound like a raving lunatic begging Thank for somebody. Or somebody. Say something shitty. I don't care. <laughs> or just, just say something. Just say something. Just type some random form of words that does not equal a sentence down there. And we will actually read it. Yeah. And take it into consideration and try to do something. If you have concerns, if you have ideas. Questions. Questions. If you want to know more on a specific topic. More specific topics. If you want us to expound on, you know, yeah. ideas and reasons on what, what, why we why we we think the way we do, or why we developed our our theories and theorems on what happened, or what had happened, or history, or whatever you want. I don't care. Just do something. Put something down there in the comments. But other than that, y'all have a wonderful week. Stay safe. Don't do anything I did. I I wouldn't do. Or don't, haven't done. Or haven't done. <laughs> don't uh, add to the population unless you're trying. And don't subtract from the population unless you're trying. Exactly. <laughs> y'all have a good one. See y'all. Thank you for listening to the Outlaw Podcast today. Remember, like, subscribe, and share. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave a comment. It helps us. Also, we're open to taking any um, any topics. Just give us some time to do some research. And once again, we will release episodes once a week uh, if you enjoy.